We are back with Allison McManus. She's the Senior Director for National Security and International Policy at the Center for American Progress. Thank you, Allison, for joining me in this segment. Uh, Anthony Adranya is going to join us in uh, the second half of the show. He's a reporter with Politico. We're going to talk some about what the U.S. Senate is thinking about aid to Israel. But before we get to that conversation, Allison, let's talk about this, uh, what we saw over the weekend, the release of multiple hostages, this temporary truce. There are a lot of people who are getting excited, thinking this, this truce could be the way that we end this conflict. Help us put into perspective what we saw happen over the weekend with respect to the hostages and what this truce means. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me, Ariva. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be on the show um, and particularly a pleasure to be able to talk about some good news for once, which we really haven't had uh, in many weeks in this conflict. So certainly plenty to be optimistic and positive about, um, particularly as we've seen small children, elderly women, uh, hostages who have been in horrendous conditions finally returned home to their families uh, so this, these are some really heartwarming scenes um, that we've seen over the weekend. And of course, we see a bit of a ray of hope uh, in the fact that this truce was, in fact, negotiated at all, um, particularly as we had seen uh, officials both on the U.S. and Israeli side seemingly quite far away from any discussions of ceasefire until this this actually came to pass. So certainly all of that is, is Well, good. I'm sorry, Allison, because... I was I think what I was tracking was that Joe Biden was very much involved in trying to negotiate this ceasefire and was working really, uh, you know, furiously behind the scenes. So when you said it looked like the U.S. and Israel were far apart, I want to just make sure I understood what you meant by that. Absolutely. We saw um, great engagement on the part of the Biden administration. I think that officials were. Uh, hesitant, let's say, to use the word ceasefire in the days leading up to the truce. Um, particularly, we had seen a lot of calls, of course, in the United States and around the world demanding a ceasefire. Um, but we didn't see officials, say, adopting that particular language as they were working behind the scenes to secure this truce. Mm -hmm. On the part of the Israelis, I think there was even more of a strong reaction to proposals for a ceasefire that may have just looked like Israel unilaterally laying down its weapons without seeing Hamas come to the table. So again, just underscoring the, the real accomplishment uh, in negotiating the U.S., of course, also Qatar and Egypt uh, and Israel together, being able to come to this agreement, which maybe even a week before hadn't really looked like it might be uh, this close around the corner. And how many to date uh, hostages have been released, Allison? And have they all been Israelis or have there been other uh, groups that have been released? So today, I think today um, we had seen 58 released as of this morning, and I believe 11 more were released today with the promise of at least another nine tomorrow. Um, so we're looking at around uh, 117 uh, hostages total, which is, of course, um, or excuse me, there'll be 98 hostages total. My math is uh, not that quick. <laughs> um, of course, that's that's not not even half of the number that were kidnapped by Hamas on October 7th. So still a ways to go. Um, the hostages that were prioritized in this first round were women and children, um, particularly those that were elderly um, that might have needed care. So it's it's really great to see again those who um, were most vulnerable return home to their families. Are Among there hostages, Americans, were there, there were Americans, Americans. Okay. absolutely. So we've seen Americans return home, 
French, Thai, Filipino, Russian. So really uh, hostages that were taken of many different nationalities, many who, who held dual nationality and may have been um, dual citizens of Israel, but certainly many families all around the world who are rejoicing to have their loved ones home today. And so you made you know made this distinction between ceasefire and truce, and I know there's some news coming out today that there's going to be an additional two day extension of the truce. Are you hopeful that because the Biden administration would like this truce to remain in place until all of the hostages are freed? And as you said, we're not even at the halfway mark, so that's going to take a lot longer than two days. So where are we likely to go from here? I am hopeful, Ariva. I think the fact that we have seen both Hamas and Israel stick to the terms of the ceasefire, stick to these negotiated terms. This was a big question mark, frankly, going into this this ceasefire deal on, on Thursday and Friday. All it would have taken would have been one Hamas rocket to totally... Um, tank this entire, this all of this progress. And the fact that we've seen good faith efforts on Hamas's part um, to lay down weapons, to return the hostages in at least relatively good condition. The fact that we've seen on Israel's part a commitment to stopping the counteroffensive and also to releasing the Palestinian prisoners that were part of the deal really underscores that both sides, I think, do want to move um, forward in a way that preserves this cessation of hostilities. This is also incredibly critical for the delivery of aid. It's been really difficult for humanitarian organizations to be able to plan for aid deliveries when we just have these sort of one-day, two-day, four-day ceasefires. So mm -hmm. what we'd really hope to see is a more robust and, and longer-term ceasefire that would allow the humanitarian organizations um, and others to deliver this aid, particularly that there are some parts of Gaza that are only now getting aid after weeks of having no water, no regular access to food, fuel, etc. So really not out of the woods when it comes to the humanitarian situation. So again, we've seen progress. That's important to build trust. We really need to see more. We know that uh, the, the Americans, the Qataris, and the Egyptians are, are working towards that. I also want to caveat by saying that when we talk about a length, more lengthy ceasefire and a real end to the, the hostilities, um, I don't think that Israel is looking at this as an end to the conflict, an end to their efforts to, to root out Hamas. I think the big question is going to be, what do those efforts look like in the future? They've talked about um, after having uh, launched the ground invasion in the north, expanding that to the south, the U.S. in particular has really pushed back on um, rushing into that. We're just now really starting, I think, to recognize what the devastation in the North looks like, to see what the collective punishment tactics, what kind of devastation that's wrought. And frankly, that's just not something that is going to be able to be sustainable in the South, where so many Gazans have fled and are internally displaced and now have nowhere to go. So again, Lots to be optimistic about, lots to celebrate right now, uh, but certainly not out of the woods either when it comes to the immediate humanitarian situation, the return of hostages, or the trajectory of the conflict. And I wonder, since we're not going to be able to accomplish getting 100 plus people back over the next two days, you know, what does that look like? They go back to bombing like they were, and then 30 days from now, we try to call another truce after thousands more people have been killed. It seems like it's going to be difficult for Israel to kind of just 
assume business as usual uh, while you know, the world has witnessed that with that ceasefire, hostages were released. So how do you go back to doing that, that being the, you know, the bombing and that that aggressive ground strategy when there are over 100 hostages still in captivity? It's a really good question, Ariva. And I think what we're hoping is that we won't see that, that we won't see a return to the um, widespread, indiscriminate kinds of shelling, the ground invasion, um, the mass displacement of people like we saw in the north. I think the hope is, again, as the temperature uh, drops, let's say, on the conflict as cooler heads have prevailed, as we've seen good faith on, on all parts here, um, that this will sustain for a while longer that this will allow time for uh, certainly U.S. officials, but others to work with the Israelis to really devise a strategic plan for what it will look like to combat Hamas in the long term. Um, we know that there were some announcements of Hamas leadership being killed in strikes, but really what it's going to take to to grapple with um, the fact that Hamas has been so deeply entrenched uh, in in well, in because, Gaza. Yeah, because Hamas terrorists you know, sell terrorist organization, but also they are the governing body in the Palestine right now. So when you say eliminate them, I guess that's always a little troubling for people. Like, what does that look like? Who then governs this region? And, and I, I just want to note too, that there's an article in the New York Times that a part of the deal required Israel to release, uh, release Palestinian prisoners. And uh, the Palestinian uh, commission is now, Palestinian Authority Commission is saying, Yes, they release Palestinian prisoners, but they are arresting more at a faster pace than they're releasing. So does that threaten in any way this, this ceasefire if Israel is, yes, releasing prisoners, but yet they are constantly arresting Palestinians? And there's so, some, some of the, the arrestees include children, the elderly women. Uh, so, you know, what does that look like? I think what you're touching on here is really um, some of the obstacles that we're seeing, some of the challenges that we're seeing when we really start to think about what comes next. Um, and, and I think what comes next, again, after this period of um, intense response, let's say, you know, which which may be understandable after the brutality of the October 7th terrorist attacks, but is certainly not um, sustainable. And it, it's an intensity that certainly hasn't um, let's say, advanced hopes for, for lasting peace, um, to say nothing of violate international law, et cetera. So now what we have to see is, is yes, a, a more enduring ceasefire, a longer <laughs> ceasefire, but really grappling with some of these questions. Hamas, as you said, it, it's a, it is a terrorist organization. There are Hamas leaders who are absolutely responsible for and need to be held account to account for um, the, the truly heinous acts that we saw on October 7th. So that question of justice can't be left unanswered. And yet so much of Hamas and so much of the governance of Gaza um, is intertwined with this, this Hamas leadership. Something that I've been mentioning um, over the past few days is how after the war in Iraq, uh, we saw efforts to remove all of the Ba'ath Party um you know, Ba'ath Party, let's say, functionaries from governance positions, positions in ministries, et cetera, and that that really led to a governance vacuum in Iraq that was then filled by... Filled by more terrorists. 
or terrorists in the Islamic State, right? So if that's a lesson to learn at all, it's to say that, you know, some of those who may have been part of the Hamas political infrastructure may not have been involved in the planning of, of these attacks. And so those um, folks will need to be dealt with differently vetted um, and, and have a place in, in governance after the conflict. And, and the really, other- who does that, Allison? Because we know the U.S., the Israel kind of hinted at the fact of preoccupation, going back in and occupy, reoccupation, I should say, reoccupying the region. And the U.S. has really kind of rejected that as a solution. So you know, who gets to make that final call about what that looks like? It's another really great question and one that I can tell you there's a <laughs> lot of folks right now in Washington, D.C., uh, at the White House, at the State Department and Congress that are, you know, thinking about this um, and have been thinking about this since October 8th. There is there is a crisis of legitimacy right now when it comes to Palestinian leadership. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Israel cannot be uh, a reoccupying power. That's something that the United States has made clear. It's been really encouraging to see um, how strong some of those statements have been uh, because it's been just as troubling to see, you know, these illusions uh, from some Israeli leadership that this could even potentially be an option. Then the question remains, who would lead in Gaza? The Palestinian Authority that leads in the West Bank and that governs in the West Bank is generally seen to not be a credible uh, governing body. And so that provides a lot of concerns, particularly if then it looks as though the PA is being installed in Gaza on the backs of military tanks. So there will need to be work done to rebuild trust in governing institutions, institutions that are not Hamas, because let's also remember Hamas was not leading democratically. They were not leading an inclusive government. Um, They were leading a government that was empowered by illiberalism uh, as well. So to really see a a legitimate governing body in Palestine, especially in Gaza, this may take a while. So what's going to happen in the transition period? There's been several different proposals, um, potentially having some uh, regional partners step in, create a transitional government, delay elections, um, work to build capacity and to build uh, resilience among the governance. Um, but the question definitely, it, it still remains open and it's going to be a, a key challenge uh, that that's urgently needed, right, to be thinking about right this mo- very moment. Yeah. And, you know, I guess consistent with that is Netanyahu, uh, who is wildly unpopular uh, amongst some, you know, his constituents in Israel. And some statements that he has made to suggest that he's really not interested in a two-state solution where you have this independent governing body uh, in Gaza. So, you know, how obviously that has to complicate things even more because the trust that you mentioned, that the trust vacuum uh, exists both ways. So even the the civilian non-terrorist folks who are in the Gaza Strip in the Palestine, you know, have zero faith in the government of Netanyahu, some of his own people aren't, you know, uh, don't have trust and faith that he's the leader that can bring about some kind of peaceful solution. So lots of questions, obviously, yet to be answered, very complex geopolitical issues. Uh, you and I, uh, you know, I think we're, we're hitting on a lot of the great questions, the answers, uh, you know, still not all that clear, even, you know, amongst those who study this, do this for a living. But I thank you for your 
insights in this, you know, very, as you said, positive, encouraging news uh, and grateful that those hostages that have been released, you know, back home with their families and hopefully we'll continue to see more uh, hostages released and this greater truce ex extensions for that humanitarian aid, which is so critical. Again, thank you, Allison, for joining me. When we come forward, we're going to talk to a political reporter about the U.S. aid to Israel. What is that going to look like? Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back and political reporter Anthony Adragna is joining me. He's out with a new article just released uh, today talking about the U.S. Senate, uh, the vote that needs to take place in the House and the Senate on foreign aid to Israel. There's some dissension. Uh, particularly amongst Democrats who are divided about whether that aid to Israel needs to come with conditions. We know Senate Foreign Relations Chair Ben Cardin said today he does not support placing conditions on USA to Israel, and he's not in favor of a ceasefire. Uh, so, Anthony, thank you for joining us. You have given us a, a look into how our Senate is thinking about aid. And we know that we have a new speaker, Mike Johnson, not very experienced, but who's facing some pretty big challenges himself. And all of this is going on as senators and Congress people are gearing up for the holidays and hoping to get home on time. So tell us what is likely to happen with this aid package to Israel. Well, I think that still is sort of the big question in Washington. And thank you for having me. Uh, certainly, we're seeing a lot of momentum, uh, first mover advantage, if you will, from the Senate. They're intending uh, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has indicated he wants to put this package um, of assistance on the floor as soon as next week. That would include assistance for Israel, for Ukraine, uh, money for Taiwan. And then crucially, this is sort of the part that has held things up. Uh, Republicans are insisting on some changes to border security policy. There are ongoing discussions right now. A bipartisan group of senators has been meeting regularly through over the holidays and up till and including tonight uh, in hopes of trying to find um, some sort of compromise that they can agree on there. But basically, this is all going to hitch a ride together or it's probably not going to ride. And so therein lies the question. And I think this week's going to be pretty critical for determining whether or not they can move something on the floor uh, before the holidays. So we know some of the conditions that some lawmakers want to attach to this aid to Israel is around border security. Uh, lots of Republicans and Mike Johnson himself has says, look, you know, we want to get a, a bill passed in the House that provides aid to both the Ukraine and Israel. But, you know, we also want that tied to more funding for the border. How likely is it that, you know, he can get a pass in the, on the House side? through with what Democrats may consider as some poison pills or some extreme conditions around funding for the border. Right. I mean, obviously, the, the border has been an issue for the last decade or plus uh, <laughs> where members have not been able to come together. I think the hurdles there are still going to be enormous. The first thing to watch is whether or not this Senate group can come together and agree on something that could pass their chamber. Obviously, you'll need 10 Republican votes to get past the Senate um for anything to get done and then yeah obviously the house um both under former speaker kevin mccarthy and under new speaker mike johnson uh republicans have the narrowest of majorities and the speakers have struggled to keep their caucus together i think uh certainly to your point uh anything that's agreed to 
is going to still lose a big chunk of the Democratic conference, um, anything touching the border. And so whether or not the speaker can cobble together the votes he needs, uh, presuming something gets past the Senate, which, as I said, should not be a given, uh, that's going to be a really tricky balancing act and probably a really good first test uh, or an, a good test for the speaker as he settles into this new job with this really, really narrow majority. Well, even in the Senate, is it your sense that the Senate Democrats would be willing to pass some legislation for aid for Israel and Ukraine that's tied to border funding? I think um, certainly there's probably not a ton of enthusiasm, but I think Democratic senators recognize that Republicans have been really crystal clear about this. Um, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has underscored this at every opportunity that these things need to go together. Um, So I think there is a recognition among Democrats that um, nothing is going to get done if there are not some changes to the border security policies of the country. So that's going to be kind of a necessary impetus to move this package along. That being said, I think Democrats are going to hold their fire until they see what exactly can be agreed to here. The details obviously matter a a great deal. And uh, that's part of why it's been so hard to move anything policy-wise in this space for more than a decade is because the details really do matter. And uh, so those those discussions are serious. We've heard that from all corners, Democrats and Republicans. Um, but whether or not they can actually reach agreement this week, I think, is really going to be the test. Um, and whether or not that can pass muster among the broader conference, I think, remains very much an open question. And again, is this, uh, from what you are hearing from Democratic senators, uh, is this border issue just about funding or is it about some real policy changes at the border in terms of how, you know, migrants are allowed into the country? We know there's, you know, big issue around parole. So it seems to be bigger than just money, throw money at the border, right? I think it's a question of yes and. Uh, it's going to be money and it's also going to be these policy changes to what you were alluding to. My colleague Burgess Everett um, reported tonight that parole um, is one of the major sticking points for that group. Um, obviously, all these policy issues regarding immigration and enforcement, um, are they have enormous constituencies. They're enormously fraught. And so I think that really is the challenge here. And members have obviously been negotiating for a couple of weeks now. Uh, and I think the talks are serious. They're more serious than I can remember in certainly the last half decade or so. But um, yeah, the details are really going to matter here. And they've been pretty keeping things pretty close to the vest uh, up until this point. As as you may be familiar, anytime kind of rumors of what may be as part of a compromise package in these negotiations leaks out, you have people from all sides uh, that may be looking to attack that. So I think senators are are keeping things uh, pretty tight lipped at this point as they try to work out those details. Yeah, I I cannot even imagine tackling the substantial border policy issues uh, in the time frame that we have before the holidays and trying to get that done as a part of funding uh, that's, you know, really urgently needed by both Israel and Ukraine. You know, we haven't had major immigration policy changes in decades in this country. And to think we're going to get it done in, what, three weeks? It just seems a little optimistic. And then you think about whatever the Senate Democrats and Republicans might come up with going over to the House. How is Mike Johnson going to get those, you know, that 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 extremist Republican caucus to agree to anything that's uh, 
you know, doesn't include some of the substantial funding and policy changes that they wanted on immigration. Yeah, the you know the art of the compromise is going to be tested <laughs> once again in uh, in uh, Washington, and um, certainly there has been, uh, as we've seen over and over again this year, um, the the pull of the Republican conference, if you will, does not seem to always reflect the reality of negotiating with a Democratic president and a Democratic Senate. So by by its very nature, uh, as math works, uh, you're going to need to make compromises to try to get anything done here. I think the fact that Israel does enjoy such broad bipartisan support in both chambers is likely to sort of pull these these things along if they can reach an agreement on uh, the border security provisions. That obviously remains a huge open question. But I think uh, it's very hard for me to imagine Congress leaving town uh, for the holidays before they're providing additional aid to Israel. I think one thing that I, I would underscore is the speaker made some comments today um, expressing really an urgency for providing assistance to Ukraine. Um, when he was just a rank and file member of the House, little known to the national public, he certainly was not as forceful. Um, so those comments struck me as particularly notable. And there certainly is significant support within the Republicans in the House for providing additional aid to Ukraine, uh, although there is significant dissent as well. So I think it, that's going to be a really interesting dynamic to watch, too, as this package uh, potentially comes together. And we come forward. Uh, one of the other things you touch on, Anthony, in your article is what's happening with George Santos. Uh, that scathing ethics report that came out that said he violated ethics rules uh, and violated criminal laws uh, and a showdown that's likely to happen this week around whether he gets to stay a congressman or not. Uh, when we come forward, I want to talk about what you predict is likely to happen with regards to that New York Republican Congressman George Santos. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. All right, we are back with Anthony Adragna. He is a reporter with Political. He's out with an article that's giving us some insights on what's likely to happen around funding for Israel and the Ukraine. Also, the article touches on George Santos. George Santos, as we know, uh, is in a lot of trouble. He has criminal indictments that have been filed against him in New York by the Department of Justice, as well as there's a scathing ethics report out that says George Santos violated ethics guidelines, house rules, and criminal laws. Now, uh, Anthony, there was a vote, right, to oust George Santos. Was that before this report came out? Because I know that that vote failed, correct? That's correct. Yeah. It, uh, and a lot of people that voted against um, expelling him at that time said they wanted to see the results of this report. Um, so now they have that report. As you mentioned, it's quite scathing. And uh, so I think may see we we know for a fact there are a lot of people that are going to change their votes this go around so george santos uh obviously not moved by that report not moved by the criminal indictment gives this three hour long expletive latent conversation on x formerly known as twitter uh you know and basically said he's not stepping down uh what do you make of that? And, and what is that likely to do to those members that have to vote on whether he gets to stay or leave? Well, I, I certainly hope that other people uh, were not uh, giving up their Friday nights to be listening to that <laughs> rant uh, from the embattled congressman. Um, but certainly we've seen no indication here that he's uh, prepared to change his approach to this. Um, I think in, during that 
uh, event uh, gathering, if you will. Uh, he mentioned that he doesn't intend to resign. He has called a press conference for Thursday. Um, I think we're all waiting to see whether or not, um, you know, he maintains that position that he's not going to resign. Um, but barring that, I think it's it's very clear that he's going to remain defiant. And uh, I think the fact that he's taken such a strident position on so many of these matters um, has really uh, ruffled the feathers of his colleagues. And many of them are frankly just tired of this show. Uh, they're tired of the headlines. They think it reflects poorly on the House Republican conference. And uh, yeah, they're tired of the Santos show. So I think many of them are going to avail themselves of this opportunity to uh, see that his time in Congress uh, comes to a close sooner rather than later. We know a lot of his New York Republican Congress member colleagues have been the most vocal uh, and they've been calling for his resignation for months now. And as you say, he's been pretty strident about it. Uh, is there any indication from your contacts when this vote is likely to happen? You said that Santos is calling his own press conference on Thursday. Is that when you're hearing, you know, is that the expected date of the vote? So the, the, the timing of the actual vote remains fluid and there's a whole bunch of wonky procedural reasons. Republicans are going to be inclined to not they're not going to want to vote on there's going to be a Democratic led effort to try to expel Santos. Republicans aren't going to want, want to vote on that. The head of the Ethics Committee, who is a Republican, has offered his own resolution. Um, so there's going to be a push to, I think, call that up and make that be the vote that uh, members take. I think Republicans are going to feel more confident voting on that. Um, but there's always the chance that Congressman Santos resigns before any of this and preempts, uh, you know, a formal vote. Um, he's obviously maintained that's not something that he's prepared to do, um, mm -hmm. but members frequently uh, say they're never going to do something until right before they do it. So right. you know, we're still waiting, and uh, the timing of all this remains quite fluid this week, but I would expect I'd be shocked if the House came back and left without dealing with Santos in some way. And, and what are you hearing about likely replacements? Like, are, are folks lining up? Uh, Republicans in particular, who, you know, see this as an opportunity for them to throw their hat into the ring and you know try to win his seat? Well, this obviously his seat was a, a top target even before um, for Democrats, that is, um, even before any of these revelations came out. Um, it's obviously a seat that President Joe Biden carried in 2020, swung back to Republicans in 2022. Um, there was a crowded race of Democrats looking to take on Santos before any of these allegations. I would expect there's going to be a crowded uh, number of Republicans that are going to be eyeing the seat as well. Um, he's already announced that he's not going to seek re-election. But in the event there is a, a vacancy before the regular election cycle, I would be shocked if there wasn't a crowded field of Republicans that really want to hold the seat. Republicans obviously have the narrowest of House majorities, so every seat does matter. And I would expect them to contest this seat um, quite, quite fervently. And uh, so we know one of the reasons that Kevin McCarthy was reluctant to try to push Santos out was because of this narrow GOP majority. So if he is ousted or if he resigns, what does that do for Mike Johnson in terms of trying to get this critical Israel aid, Ukraine aid bill passed? Well, you know, I think the challenge is the fundamental challenge is going to remain for Speaker Johnson, whether it's a three vote majority, a four vote majority, two vote majority. Um, several members have already announced their intention or one member, I should say, has announced their intention to resign early next year to accept another job. So, you know, he's going to have a really narrow majority for the rest of this Congress in, in the best case. Um, so I'm not sure that keeping Santos around 
And uh, the negative headlines that seem sure to generate um, for the next year would really be worth that additional vote at this point, given that he's working with three or four vote margin, as I said, in the best of times without any absences. So, you know, I'm not sure it makes that much of a difference from a practical standpoint, um, given that we're not really expecting to see super bipartisan, super sweeping legislation, I should say, um, for the rest of this Congress. That being said, you know, Republicans are obviously not looking to lose any more seats they don't have to. So this I think that's why this vote really is quite significant, because this will not be a step that is taken lightly if they do vote to expel him, kind of given the realities that they have with governing um, with this really, really slim majority. And just generally, uh, you know, Mike Johnson has had to do some of the things that Kevin McCarthy did, uh, i.e. get a bill passed with a a significant number of Democratic votes. Uh, Why, you know, why is Mike Johnson a apparently getting a little bit more leeway than that which was afforded to Kevin McCarthy. Holiday season? No, I don't. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I think there is... He's passing uh, out candy canes. Okay. Exactly. Uh, no, I think there is something to be said for kind of a honeymoon period, if you will, for any new speaker. I think most members, um, given truth serum, would tell you that they recognize this is a really tough job, um, trying to navigate a very fractured and ideologically diverse um, conference that, again, only has the narrowest of majorities. So I think that probably goes into all of this. Um, I think, though, that you've already seen conservatives are going to be watching very closely to see how he navigates kind of the next fights ahead. And um, they're really they're expecting, you know, this is one of the true conservative uh, fighters that they've installed as speaker. And I think if they don't see that, um, conservatives are going to get antsy pretty quickly. They didn't change the rule, keep in mind, that allows only one member to make a motion to toss the speaker out effectively. So that's kind of something that's always going to be on Speaker Johnson's mind or any speaker that comes right. um, in control of the conference. So just something to keep in mind as we go forward. But I think conservatives are already showing that they're going to be keeping a close eye on what he does next. And one of your other colleagues wrote a piece about Republican, at least Donald Trump, not Republicans, uh, chomping at the bit to revisit Obamacare. 13-year-old law passed, and the Senate Republicans are saying, "Ah, that ship has sailed. Can you envision a world in which really a Republican House or Republican senators would try to replace? I mean, we've heard so much about it when Trump was in office, but there was never any alternative put forth. It was, you know, we hate Obamacare. We hate Obamacare. We need something else. But when we got down to what that something else was, there was never anything provided of substance. So do you think Republicans are up to take that battle? I mean, they've lost it at every turn. Are are they really thinking that that's a a good winning uh, issue in 24? Well, I think, you know, you certainly obviously can't ignore uh, the pronouncements of uh, the leading political figure in a party, certainly. But I think the quotes in that piece that you're referencing um, from my colleague Burgess Everett uh, really reflect the lack of appetite to take this on. Republicans were obviously there in 2018 and saw the consequences of trying to repeal Obamacare. That was a major motivating factor in the midterms um, that saw the Democrats um, swept back to power um, in the House, certainly. Um, so I would be surprised if you see that translate into much of a political appetite to revisit those battles. I think many people sort of view that as uh, settled now. They recognize that um, the plan, the replacement plan never materialized. I don't think anything would suggest that that 
that calculus has changed materially. So I'd be surprised if, uh, you know, uh, former President Trump's rhetoric translated into real congressional appetite to actually step in and revisit that issue. Not to mention that so many members of Congress themselves have Obamacare for themselves and their entire families. And it's incredibly popular and has resulted in you know millions and millions of Americans gaining access to health insurance. All right, Anthony, thank you so much for joining me. I uh, appreciate your insights and we'll be watching what happens. As you said, not likely that the Senate and Congress are going to leave for vacation without some aid to Israel. We'll see what that package ultimately looks like.